0: It's great to have um, such a good turnout tonight, I'm not not surprised. Um, I'm delighted tonight to welcome Sir Venki Ramakrishnan, President of the Royal Society, to give the 2019 Haldane Wolfson Lecture. Uh, Wolfson has always had a particular affiliation with the sciences. Article 1 of the College's very first statute says that The college shall have a special concern for the promotion of studies in the natural sciences, and tonight's annual lecture is part of that commitment. Some of you may not know that where we are now, here in the grounds of Wollstone College, used to be part of an estate called Chirwell or Charwell, owned by Professor J.S. Haldane, the eminent Scottish physiologist hence the Haldane of these annual lectures. Haldane was known for extreme self-experimentation, such as locking himself in an airtight chamber and seeing the effect of various noxious gases on himself. And I hope that tonight's event will be the polar opposite of that experiment. Haldane's son, J.B.S. Haldane, who was subjected by his father to only slightly less extreme experiments, nevertheless turned out equally outstanding as an academic, researching genetics and introducing for the first time the concept of a primordial soup to describe the apparently random cocktail of chemicals from which life itself was formed. Haldane Jr. became frustrated with the claustrophobic atmosphere of Oxford and England, became a communist, an enthusiast for Stalin, probably a spy, and he moved to India, where he became an Indian national and a vegetarian. <laughs> well, that life story um, is a strangely inverted form of Venkis. He started in India, and as a young man, he studied for and was awarded a BSc at the University of Baroda. He submitted his PhD in physics at the University of Ohio in 1976, then decided to move across to biology, studying the subject at the University of California in San Diego. The detailed work for which he won his Nobel Prize in 2009 in chemistry began soon after that, when he started studying ribosomes at Yale with Peter Moore. And for those like me whose understanding of cell biology is what you might generously call sketchy, ribosomes are tiny cell organelles which function as micromachines to make proteins, we knew about them in the nineteen fifties, but their detailed function has taken decades to chart in a mammal cell. There can be one uh, can be ten million ribosomes, and each can join up amino acids to form proteins at a rate of about two hundred a minute. Wolvenki well, continued this work to understand their extraordinary and extraordinarily complex function at Yale, then Brookhaven then the University of Utah. And in 1999, he joined the Medical Research Council Lab of Molecular Biology at Cambridge. And 10 years later, he and colleagues were awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their work on the structure and function of ribosomes. So was elected president of the Royal Society in 2015, a five-year tenure, which will come to a close towards the end of 2020. So we look forward tonight to learning not only what his scientific discoveries have been, but also, and as much, about how he took that journey of discovery. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Um, Much of what I'm going to tell you has actually been described in a popular book that I have just published. And one interesting thing is it's dedicated to a very good friend of mine who died uh, last year named Graham Mitchison who was uh, Haldane's great-grandson. So, so J.B.S. Haldane was his, uh, grand, his grandmother's brother. And his grandmother was Naomi Mitchison. Uh, and there's another odd connection. This book is an attempt to very frankly talk about what it's like to do science and what scientists are like and in some ways it was modeled at, on the genre of the double helix although fortunately Richard Dawkins calls me the nice Jim Watson But <laughs> uh, and, and the odd thing is that the double helix itself was dedicated to Naomi Mitchison so there's some curious symmetry there anyway um, <clears throat> uh, there are four themes in this in this book, and the the main character in the book is actually the ribosome, which is this amazingly complex and ancient mis- machine that reads the code of life and makes you and me and every other life form. Uh, by the way, I'm assuming uh, I'm giving a talk for a very general audience so that those who are not scientists will get something out of it. and Those of you who are molecular biologists uh, will find No really new information, but I hope you'll be entertained uh, nevertheless. So the other theme is what it was like to be an outsider uh, who suddenly found himself in the middle of a high-stakes race. I didn't go to uh, top universities, even in India, uh, let alone in the US uh, or Britain. I I went to sort of my local state school and some relatively lesser-known universities, and suddenly found myself uh, you know, tackling this problem and uh, competing with very well-established groups. And a third is um, the, the, what I call the human messiness of science. You know, people have, who are not scientists have this feeling that science is a series of logical steps done by dispassionate uh, people, very logical, sometimes in, in a noble quest for the truth. And, and the reality is science is very messy. You, you make mistakes, you have dead ends but but beyond that, you also have personalities and egos and ambition and rivalry there's always the question of competition versus collaboration. sometimes you 're engaged in both at the same time, sometimes even with the same person, you know you might be competing on one aspect while collaborating on another and all of this is slightly well more than slightly. Uh, you know, exacerbated by the whole business of prizes, and I'll have something to say about that uh, later on. And finally, there are some lessons uh, from my own life and science which are unfortunately too late for me now, but, you know, I can sort of look back and and think about what I learned. So the first thing is, you know, coming back to the ribosome, we all... Everybody thinks they know what genes are. Even those who have no idea of molecular biology, they all think they understand what genes are. Genes are something that make us what we are, the things we inherit. Uh, We can have good genes or bad genes and so on. And uh, the reality is that genes are actually units of information that reside in our genetic material, which is in the form of these long molecules uh, called DNA, and when the entire sequence of DNA was determined from different organisms, uh, the approximate number of these genes was, was determined. And we have about 25,000 genes uh, in us, but oddly enough, a weed, a Arabidopsis uh, thaliana, has, has about the same number of genes, and a worm has a, almost the same number of genes, you know, C. elegans. And that must give us some pause every time we think we're so, so much superior uh, and uh, at the pinnacle of life uh, to realize this. And, and it's because we're fooled by the fact that we're intelligent. But the purpose of life is not to be intelligent. The purpose of life is to survive. And, and that's, that's quite a different thing. Anyway, so what are these genes that we have 20 or 30,000 of them are? Well, first of all, Genes, as I said, reside on DNA, and this is the molecule on which our genetic information is stored. It's now iconic. Every school child has heard about the double helix, uh, which has two strands with uh, four types of building blocks and arranged in particular uh, sequences. So you can think of DNA as a long sentence uh, written in a four letter alphabet and uh, depending on what sentence it has uh, in different sections, uh, it specifies different types of information. Now, that information is used to make proteins, and proteins are also long polymers. They're not double helical, but they're just single-stranded polymers, and they consist of 20 types of building blocks, so they're an entirely different type of language. You can think of it as a 20-letter alphabet. And these building blocks have different shapes and, and sizes, and they have different chemical properties. And it's the order of the building blocks in a protein that allow has within it the information on how that protein should fold up, how that chain should fold up and carry out a particular function. Now, this is just showing you what the chemical... You know, if you stretched out a protein and represented it as a chemical diagram, this is what a protein might look like, and you can simplify this by specifying a letter for each of these amino acids and representing it as some sort of beads on a string now here 's the interesting thing: supposing you had different strips of paper and you you wrote down a different sentence on each strip of paper. And depending on what you wrote down, the paper would magically fold up into a particular shape. It's that amazing that the sequence of the uh, amino acids, the building blocks of a protein, that one-dimensional sequence contains it within itself the information for the chain to fold up into a particular shape. It's, a, it's a, almost a miracle, really, except it's all chemistry. And... Um, when it does that, the proteins can fold up into completely different shapes so for example i 've given you three examples of what proteins look like. This is a long uh, three stranded helix, very much like uh, the braid uh, you know I, I grew up in India where women typically braid their hair and th- uh, you know which are three strands that are uh, woven to make a braid, and uh, that 's what collagen is, and it collagen It's the largest protein by weight in our bodies. It makes up the skin. It makes up our cartilage, our connective tissue, and so on. Now, and without that, we wouldn't really have form. And this is a protein called hemoglobin. It consists of four pieces, each of which contains an iron atom. Uh, And it's the molecule that carries oxygen from our uh, lungs uh, through our blood to the tissues where it's needed, uh, including our muscles. And this is a protein called rhodopsin. It sits in the sort of membrane, which is the surface of our cells in our retina, and, with, and it detects light, and it converts that signal by detecting light into a form that gets transmitted as a signal uh, to the brain that, uh, that light has been detected in this particular part of the retina. And so without that, you wouldn't be able to see. Now, what's interesting is these three proteins carry out completely different functions. They have completely different shapes. Yet, all of them are made by instructions specified in our genes, which is really a section of DNA that that contains that information. So, how does that work? Well, I told you DNA consists of four types of building blocks – which can form pairs, base pairs. These bases, uh, there are four types of bases, and each base can only <coughs> pair with a specifically specific base on the other strand of DNA. And so there are four types of bases, but each base can only pair with one of the other three. So how would you go from that kind of information to making a protein, which is a completely different type of polymer made of 20 different types of amino acids. So that's the problem. You've got to go from the language of DNA to the language of protein. And this is a, a, a language consisting of a four-letter alphabet. This is a language consisting of a 20-letter alphabet. And for that reason, molecular biologists call this process translation. Now, it turns out that DNA isn't read directly. There's a, What happens is that a copy of the relevant section of DNA is made into a molecule called RNA. One way to think of it is DNA is the collection of all the genetic information we have. So we can think of it as a library of all of the books that that we might need. And each book might represent a gene. Now, if you go to the British Library, they're not gonna let you check out the book that you want and, and read it directly. What they're going to do is, if it's a valuable book, they'll give you a scan of the book. It used to be they'd give you a microfilm, but now they'll give you a digital scan uh, of the book. And you can read that. So that's sort of what you could think of as a working copy uh, that you can read. And the original is stored away. And so, in a way, that's what the cell does. So DNA is the archival storage of our genetic information. And when it needs to use it to make a protein, it makes a copy of the relevant section called messenger RNA, which is very much like DNA, also four-letter alphabet, also consisting of bases, very similar structure, except there's a very important difference in that the sugar uh, has an extra oxygen atom. And that's why it's called RNA for ribonucleic acid. DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid because it lacks that extra oxygen. But somehow you have to go from there to there, and that's a, a, a complicated process. So you Take DNA, and you make a copy of a section called RNA, and then you translate that into a protein. And how would you do that? Well, if you said each base, each one of the four bases specifies an amino acid, you'd only be able to code for four amino acids. But you have to actually code for 20. Now, if you say, I'm going to read two at a time, you'd still only be able to code for 16, four times four combinations uh, of two at a time. And so, uh, not surprisingly, nature uses uh, three at a time, so it reads the, these bases three at a time. Now, amino acids don't recognize these combination of three bases directly. They don't have a particular affinity for these uh, bases in that way. And the way forward was actually predicted by Francis Crick. He said there'd be an adapter molecule that would, at some point, in one way, would recognize three bases by having three bases itself, and so it would be recognizing it them by pairing, just like the bases pair across the DNA helix, and so it would recognize three bases by having three bases that would be complementary and and, and pair, and at some at, at the other end, it would bring along an amino acid, and then. Uh, This unit of three bases is called a codon because it's sort of the unit of the code that has to be deciphered to make a protein. And similarly, for the next codon, there'd be a different adapter molecule. These adapter molecules are called transfer RNA or tRNA because they transfer the amino acid that they bring along to the growing uh, protein chain. Now, this sort of thing doesn't happen by itself It's it's a complicated process. And cell biologists who were looking at where newly made proteins uh, uh, were localized inside the cell found that they were localized in these little blobs uh, on an organelle called the endoplasmic reticulum, which is an organelle inside the cell. And when they purified uh, these endoplasmic reticulum and purified the particles... They found that these particles were all made of two halves. You can see that each one has a, a large and a small piece. They're called the large and small subunits. And they were, because they were from a op- particle called the microsome, which is really fragments of the endoplasmic reticulum, and when they analyzed them, they consisted of both RNA and protein. So they were called ribonucleoprotein particles of the microsomal fraction. And this was a, quite a mouthful to say every time you wanted to refer to it. So someone named Howard Dinses said, why don't we just call it the ribosome instead? And that's the name that uh, stuck ever since the 50s. Now, people went on to analyze what these particles were made of, and they found that they were about two-thirds RNA by mass, uh, but they consisted of 50 different proteins in, the, in bacteria, which went to make up the two subunits of the ribosome. And uh, these two subunits would join up and make the entire ribosome. And early pictures by electron microscopy uh, sort of gave you an idea of the shape of the ribosome. And then a lot of work went into figuring out how the ribosome does its business. And what they found was that the small subunit attached itself to the genetic message, which is the mRNA that contained the genetic information. And the ribosome had three slots for these adapter molecules, the tRNA molecules that would bring in the amino acids. And it would first have to figure out where to start, which is itself a complex process that I'll gloss over. And when it knew where to start, the first tRNA would sit there with the first amino acid, waiting to start the protein chain. And then a new tRNA would be selected based on whether it matched the codon, those three bases, or not. So if it was a wrong tRNA, it would be rejected. But if it was a correct tRNA, then the ribosome would accept it and join up the first and second uh, amino acids. And in doing so, it would the amino acid would be dissociated from the first tRNA, and the first tRNA would be ejected. Then the ribosome would move and then a, a, a third tRNA would come in and if it matched the third codon, it would be accepted and then uh, you know a bond would be formed between the second and third. So you see what is happening. It's reading the code here and accepting just the right tRNAs to bring in the right amino acids specified by those three bases, which are the code. So the genetic information is being used to join up amino acids in just the right order specified by the gene in the, some completely different part of the ribosome. So you can think of the ribosome as this large translating machine that's reading, at, in one part of it, is reading the genetic information and using that to select the tRNAs to synthesize the protein in just the right order. So that was all known when I joined join the field uh, of ribosomes. And to do that, uh, I want to just tell you how I got to even uh, working on ribosomes. So as you heard, I uh, did my uh, undergraduate work in Baroda, which is in Western India, in Gujarat, which is where all the Patels, by the way, come from. Although I, I'm a South Indian, so I was a foreigner from the age of three because I moved to Gujarat where I initially didn't even speak the language. And then at the age of 19, I set off to do a PhD in physics uh, to the only university that would give me a a, a fellowship uh, at the time because I had not taken the GRE. It was a sort of last-minute decision. And so I went to Ohio University and spent five years there. I'm afraid that my most notable accomplishment there uh, in those five years was to meet and marry my wife. Uh, And... uh, and, and, and so what was the problem? Well, as I started studying physics, I found uh, the first problem was that problems in physics seemed extremely hard. <laughs> okay. And I don't mean exam problems. I, I was fine with exam questions. But uh, but when you get beyond exams and you want to start doing something really new in physics, it turned out to be quite hard. And it's because uh, physics was... and still is, quite a mature field. And it's really hard to make what I call fundamental breakthroughs. It's it's not that there haven't been any in the last uh, 40 years, but there have been few and far between. And um, I thought that if I stayed on in physics, I would spend the rest of my time uh, doing boring calculations that really wouldn't improve understanding. You know, it might get papers published... After all, I did publish a paper that no one seems to have read uh, from my PhD. Uh, But I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. On the other hand, when I thought of biology, I used to subscribe to Scientific American, and I still read it. And uh, almost every issue reported major breakthroughs in biology. It was a time when people had figured out how to sequence DNA, Structures of biological molecules were coming out for the first time. Uh, we knew about what the membranes of cells looked like and the organization of cells looked like. It was an amazing period, and it hasn't let up yet. Okay, And, uh, so, and I knew that many physicists had made this transition. Uh, you know, Max Perutz, who founded the lab where I now work, Max Delbrook, who was a famous phage uh, geneticist, and Francis Crick. Uh, you know, is one of the great uh, molecular biologists of the century. So, you know, I thought, well, maybe, you know, it isn't unreasonable to try and make this transition. And I thought briefly of doing a postdoc. I was actually offered postdocs by two people. Uh, one was Tom Stites, with whom I ended up sharing the Nobel Prize, ironically enough. He, doesn't re- he didn't remember it, but I obviously remembered that. Uh, that and another was uh, Don Engelman also at Yale but i thought i didn't know any biology and if i did a postdoc i would learn a very narrow sliver of biology just related to the the lab and i wouldn't really understand biology in a broad sense you know and, and actually become a biologist there are physicists who go into biology and what i call dabble in biology and they turn out to be you know completely useless you know for the most part unless they contribute some technical uh, development uh, but uh, but the ones who are successful actually have stopped becoming physicists and actually become biologists like Craig or delbrook so um, I decided to go to graduate school again, and uh, I many universities wouldn 't accept me as a graduate student because I would ha- I had a PhD by or was going to get one uh, but fortunately, the University of California at San Diego took me on as a graduate student and so I uh, spent the first year actually taking undergraduate courses, and uh, my the feeling is if you want to learn something, you have to start at the beginning, and you can't pretend to know something that you you don't. and uh, And then started doing some research, but by the end of the second my sort of during my second year, I felt I'd acquired the background I needed, and I didn't see the point of getting a, a second Ph.D. So I read an article. Uh, in Scientific American, on using a very physical technique called neutron scattering to try and do some work on the structure of the ribosome. By then, I, I, of course, I knew what ribosomes were uh, and uh, that, that they were important. And so I wrote to... One of the authors was Don Engelman, who had offered me a postdoc. So I told him, you offered me a postdoc when I didn't know a damn thing and, about biology. And so now I actually know something, maybe you're still interested. And he connected me with, up with his collaborator, Peter Moore, who uh, was Jim Watson's graduate student. And Jim Watson, for uh, he's in deep trouble these days, but he is one of the people who, apart from DNA, also pioneered work on uh, ribosomes. And so um, I ended up working in Peter's lab, and they were using a technique called neutron scattering, which turned out to be a sort of a dead end, uh, to try and understand where all of the 20 proteins in the small subunit were in space. Now, the point is, you didn't know anything about what these proteins looked like. You just knew roughly where they were as a result of this technique. And in hindsight, it didn't tell us anything about how the ribosome worked. But the ribosome was such a huge complex problem. The the, The complex itself has half a million atoms. And so it seemed intractable. And so people thought any information is better than no information. That was the sort of philosophy uh, that, that you might think. And it's a little bit like looking under a lamppost for the keys you've lost, because that's where the light is. Okay. So um, anyway, um, it did have a, the benefit of getting me into ribosomes, you know, and that really uh, helped me in my career. So, the, what was the problem? Well, the problem is if you want to understand uh, how something works, you've got to know what it looks like. And you've got to l- know what it looks like at the level of detail that's going to tell you how it works. Uh, just to give you an example uh, of a car. You know, if you were just hovering above the earth and you saw these little dots moving around in uh, roughly in straight lines, unless perhaps you're in Oxford, uh, then, uh, you know, you, you'd have some idea that there's some thing that moves, but you wouldn't really understand how it worked until you got closer. And then you might say, oh, it's got wheels, and, you know, and it's got people that sit inside it, and that's what makes it go. But, but then you'd have to know what it roughly how it was put together, and it had something that generated power, something that steered it, and somehow they were connected. But it's only when you saw it in exquisite detail that you would be able to understand how an engine works, how does it generate force, how is that force transmitted through the crankshaft to the wheels, and how are the wheels, you know, steered, so, and how does, how does it know when to start and stop and move faster or slower? So, all of those things, you'd only know if you actually knew all of the details of how a car was put together. And it's the same with molecules. Right from the very first molecule, sodium chloride, which was done by Bragg, you know, Every time you know what a molecule looks like, it's, it's told you, uh, you know, a, a lot about how it might work. And so the question is, how do you visualize small objects? Well, normally if you want to look at something very small, you would magnify it with a lens. And what a lens does is it simply takes scattered rays uh, from the object and recombine them into an image, and under the right, with the right geometry, the image can be much larger, so you can look at it in detail. That's how a magnifying glass or a microscope uh, works. But one thing you have to remember is if the lens were not here, the, the information would still be there. The scattered rays would still be there. They simply wouldn't be recombined because the lens isn't there. To give you an example, all of you are now taking the scattered rays from the screen and recombining it, into an image on your retina. But, if, but notice that there are some empty seats, and uh, there are scattered rays that are going to the empty seats. They, too, contain that information, even though there's nobody there to uh, recombine them with their eyes. So you have to remember about the information from the scattered rays. So there isn't a good le- there isn't a lens. That's, uh, for, well, first of all, you can't use light to determine the structure of molecules. And the reason is that molecules are too small. The distance between atoms is about a thousand times smaller than the wavelength of light. And there's a law in physics that you can't resolve objects that are smaller than uh, the wavelength uh, of the object you're looking at. There are now ways to get around it uh, using some tricks, Uh, but, but but the basic law still stands because what these techniques do is not actually look at the object, but they're looking at light emitted uh, by reporters from the object. So uh, you can use a different kind of light, uh, which has a shorter wavelength. And that light is what we call x-rays. And to a physicist, x-rays and ordinary light are the same. They're all photons. But it's just x-rays have a much smaller wavelength. But the trouble is, there's no good lens for x-rays And even if there were, you wouldn't be able to determine a structure, and the reason is that you would have to hit the molecule with enough X-rays to gather signal. But X-rays, unlike ordinary light, are highly damaging. So if you hit it with enough X-rays to get a signal, even if you had an X-ray microscope, your your molecule would be uh, blasted away. So the way around that is to was a technique determined by Bragg and then by Max Perutz, which is to get your molecules to assemble in three-dimensional arrays called crystals. And then you take these crystals and you hit them with a beam of x-rays and you collect the scattered rays from the crystal. And because it's a crystal and because of a phenomenon called interference, the scattered rays don't scatter uniformly in all directions, but they're concentrated al- along certain directions that give rise to these spots. And so this is what a, a picture of the scattered rays would look like. But now what you can do is you can do in a computer what a lens does in practice, which is you can recombine the rays and c- c- reconstruct an image. And, and so uh, that's how the whole business of... Uh, trying to solve structures by crystallography works. But the point is that in order to do this, you need to get crystals of your object. You need to persuade your objects to form crystals. Now, this is very easy for simple things like salt or sugar. Any school child knows you can make a solution of salt or sugar and leave it to dry out, and you'll get crystals. If you do that with even a modest-sized protein, you'll just get a horrible goop. And it's because if you have a large molecule, it can try to come together in lots of different ways. And unless you persuade it to come together in identical ways, you won't get a crystal. You'll just get this horrible goop. And so that was a big problem. So anyway, I wanted to learn how to do crystallography. And uh, so I was at Brookhaven very frustrated Uh, using uh, this dead-end technique called neutron scattering. So I went off to the uh, LMB, where I ironically now work, uh, and I wrote to Aaron Klug. And fortunately, he he was the director of the lab, and he was a very famous uh, scientist in my field because I was also working on chromatin at the time. And luckily for me, he didn't throw my letter into the bin, but actually sponsored me for a Guggenheim fellowship so I could come and do a sabbatical. And then, for a while, uh, I thought we would uh, take those individual proteins and figure out what they looked like. So we painstakingly would purify each ribosomal protein. This was a collaboration with a colleague of mine, Steve White, and figure out what their structure was. But this is, going back to the car analogy, this would be like taking individual parts of a car and examining them in great detail and knowing what they looked like. Without having any idea how they were put together in a car, in, in, a, in a in a car, it'd be like going to a parts store, a, a, an automobile parts store, and asking for a spark plug or a you know or a, a fuel injector and saying, "Oh, that's what it looks like," but without any idea what a car looked like. So, the whole ribosome, as I said, was half a million atoms and it wasn't clear that such a thing could even be coaxed to form crystals. And that breakthrough came about as a result of uh, Ara Yonat, an Israeli scientist who worked with Heinz-Gunter Wittmann, who was a Max Planck director in Berlin. And uh, the two of them collaborated and they uh, obtained crystals of the large subunit of the ribosome. And a few years later, a group uh, in Pushchino in in Russia just outside Moscow headed by uh, this woman Maria Garber uh, obtained crystals of both the small subunit of the ribosome as well as the entire ribosome from a different species so now there were crystals of the small subunit of the large subunit of, of the entire ribosome now the initial crystals weren't very good and what i mean is that when you when you have crystals you'll have molecules that are sitting in the same orientation. The problem is they're not sitting in exactly the same orientation. And they can be in somewhat different uh, orientations and so form a crystal. Now, if the orientations are very different, the structure you're going to get is an average of all of the different uh, conformations of the uh, molecules in the crystal. And so you'll get this blurring. You'll get everything, the information will be smeared out. If they're in very precisely the same orientation, then you won't get that blurring. And somewhere in between, you'll have different levels of detail. And so if you have very poor order, your structure from your crystal will look like a blob. And as your crystal is better and better, you know, you'll see more and more detail and until you can see individual atoms. This is very rare for large molecules, even for ordinary proteins it's very rare to get crystals that are good enough to see individual atoms as spheres. But you can get uh, some intermediate state where you can start seeing the shapes of the amino acids that make up the protein. So you can start to build in an atomic structure. And that happens when uh, what we call resolution, when the resolution of the crystal is about three angstroms. So this is the sort of holy grail That means the spots that you see in a diffraction image extend out an angle to about, where you can resolve things that are about three angstroms apart. That's good enough to build an atomic model of the structure. So even though you don't have, you can't see individual atoms, you can build an atomic model. And so one of the things that Arayona did was that she obtained crystals of the large subunit that could actually diffract to good enough well enough to uh, obtain an atomic structure. But then the field was stalled. And so in the mid-1990s, crystals of the ribosome had been around for 15 years, and there was no progress, even towards a medium-resolution structure, uh, which wouldn't give you an atomic structure but could tell you a lot about the shape and architecture of the ribosome. But there's no such thing. And I'm very, very frank in the book about why I think that was... Uh, true, uh, why, why that happened. So there were good 50S crystals and people were wondering whether it was really beyond the reach of crystallography at the time and it was too big to be solved. Uh, and there were no good crystals of the small subunit or the entire ribosome. And in the meantime, what had happened as a result of two meetings where it was clear that Ad was not making progress was that the group at Yale, headed by Tom Stites and my former mentor, Peter Moore, had decided to get together and said, we're going to try and, and take a crack at this problem because otherwise nothing's going to happen. That was sort of the view that they, that they took. And it really was the view that many of us uh, came to in the mid-1990s. And so I didn't want to do that because I thought, well, if I start taking... These crystals that someone else had developed, maybe, you know, uh, people might sort of look askance at that. Um, the Yale group was, wasn't bothered by such niceties. And so uh, they, they plunged in. And so I thought, well, that's great. Let the two of them fight it out uh, for the 50S subunit. And I, I thought the whole ribosome was a little too much to tackle uh, since we had no idea whether we could even solve something uh, that big. And so I thought, what about the small subunit? That's where the code is read, and it's what makes the ribosomes ensure the accuracy of, of, of the reading of the code, and it's also the target for lots of antibiotics. And I thought that would be very interesting. And there weren't any good crystals of the ribos- of the small subunit. So I thought, well, I'll first try and figure out how to get good crystals, and then I'll uh, figure out how to solve it. Now, I forgot to mention that one other thing that was developed was this business of freezing crystals which allowed you to collect data without damage and that was very important. So people took crystals and put them in a loop and plunged them into liquid nitrogen and uh, that allowed you to collect data. So anyway, <clears throat> so I started off with this, I was at the University of Utah at the time and I uh, this was my picture of my group, and notice I'm the only one wearing lab gloves and showing, I was the only person actually doing work at the time that uh, this picture was taken. This is in the days when I still used to do lab work. So I persuaded these two guys, Bill Clemens and John McCutcheon, who were first year graduate students, that solving the structure of the 30S subunit, which is, you know, about 200,000 atoms, uh, was a good PhD project. And since they knew nothing about either ribosomes or crystallography, uh, they agreed, and they were sort of enthusiastic about it. And sometimes it tells you that if you know too much, it's actually a bad thing, because you think of all the reasons why it won't work, and, and you won't try anything. If you actually don't know enough. You know, you'll say, okay, I'll give it a shot. And, you know, things start to happen then. Okay. Now, we started working on the 30S, and I went, into, went to a meeting in Sweden where I got a a, a bit of a shock. The Yale group was making progress on the 50S, and Ata Yonat very clearly felt that the 50S was not worth tackling. Uh, She turned out to be wrong, uh, uh, by the way. But in any case, she thought it was unworkable. And she had hit on a condition uh, by which her 30S crystals now started to diffract better. So she shifted her attention from the large subunit where she was in competition with Yale uh, into the small subunit which I was going to be working on. So instead of my having a quiet niche while those two were fighting it out, I found instead I was now going to have this head-to-head competition and the Yale group was going to have a free uh, ride you know, without any uh, uh, problems. So that was a bit of a shock. Then... Uh, Harry Noller, who is a, a, a kind of leading ribosome biochemist, I, I, you know, I, we crystallographers used to refer to people like that as gel biologists, you know, because they, their entire technique is based on running gels. Anyway, so so uh, he was a, what you might call the gel biologist par excellence of ribosomology. And to my surprise, his he had decided to work on uh, ribosome crystallography, and was going to do the entire ribosome, and I thought, how the hell could that be? Well, it turned out he had imported these two Russians, uh, who, had, who were part of the original group that had crystallized the ribosome, and then he had imported this guy Jamie Kate, who had solved a large RNA structure and it was a terrific crystallographer. It is a terrific crystallographer. So suddenly he had assembled this, you know, terrific group to work on. Uh, the structure of the whole ribosome without actually knowing any crystallography, you know, himself. I'm sure he he learned as as he went along. So my quiet niche became a four-way race, uh, and right in the middle of the race, I did something that people thought was entirely crazy, which was I decided to move to a different continent, and that was to the MRC lab of uh, molecular biology. And why did I want to do that? Well, I wanted to work on whole ribosome structures now, it's true that Ada now had crystals of, the la- of small subunit as well, but she had the crystals of the large subunit for f- 10 years, and nothing had happened. So I didn't know how long it would take uh, to solve the structure. And um, so I also f- figured that I wanted to go to a place which had stable funding. And universities all over depend on grants which typically last three to five years. And, you know... Ribosomes had been, crystals had been around for 15 years. What if I was in year four and nothing had happened? And my grand, and the NIH would be ruthless. They'd just cut me off and say, this guy is wasting his time, okay? So um, I thought I should go to a place that understood how to support long-term research. I also thought it'd be good to have really expert crystallography colleagues, that is, people who are, you know, experts in developing the method rather than people like me who used a method. It's a difference between driving a car and being an automobile engineer or a mechanic who understands how a car works. So, for all these reasons, I, I thought the uh, LMB would be a great place. And, you know, it's also a place with a terrific collegial atmosphere, a lack of hierarchy. Young scientists are given independence from uh, very early on. And working in small groups, and it's also an institution that where the em- emphasis is on tackling hard problems, uh, not about publishing a lot of papers. And you know, I, I often point out Fred Sanger, who won two Nobel prizes. You know, if you look at you know uh, him on uh, look him up, he had about forty papers and had an h index of eighteen, which wouldn't get him tenure in most places. <laughs> so. Uh, there you go. So right in the middle of the race, I moved to Cambridge, uh, you know, and, uh, and then I had to reassemble a group in Cambridge because only two people moved with me from Utah. One of them was Bill Clemens. And uh, so there was a mad scramble to keep up in Cambridge. And this is Brian Wimberly, who moved from Utah, and this is how he spent his entire year and a half in Cambridge, was in this dark room looking at a, a, a graphic screen, uh, and those are his stereo glasses. And in order to solve this structure, we needed very powerful sources uh, of x-rays called synchrotrons. And these are some of the synchrotrons we used. And I sometimes joke you could join a ribosome lab and see the world. But actually, you only see the inside of the synchrotrons. Uh, you don't go skiing in Grenoble, for instance. Uh, now, one of the instruments we wanted to use was at the... Synchrotron called AP, the APS in Argon because it had a particular way in which you could precisely align crystals, and I needed that for the kind of data I was trying to collect. And uh, so this is just my little joke about you know seeing the world synchrotrons. Now, I wanted to get time at the APS. So in October of 1999, when I felt that I had reached the limit of what other synchrotrons could do. I wrote to the guy running it and requested beam time. I got no reply. So in November, I repeated my request. And he replied saying, you know, we're going to give you time, uh, but it'll be in the early in the new year and so on. Then I heard nothing from him. So in December, I called him up, and all I got was his voicemail, no reply. Then on January 4th, Peter Moore wrote to me about visiting Cambridge. So I told him, look, you guys have collected data at the APS. What was it like? And he said it was the best data they ever got. And that's not even accounting for the special alignment capability. So I knew that Paul Sigler, a very famous structural biologist, was Peter Moore's colleague at Yale. But he was also on the committee that oversaw this beamline. And moreover, the guy who ran the beamline was his former postdoc. So I asked Peter, could you please talk to Paul and tell him, you know, my problem. I can't get beam time on this beam line. And so Peter replied the next day saying he's going to talk to Paul. The following day, Peter writes to me and said, Paul is going to contact the APS. And the very day after, the guy who had been ignoring me for months writes to me saying he was very sorry for the delay, he was really busy, etc. and they're going to give me time at the end of March okay now this is early January so it's almost three months from that time it's almost six months from the time I asked him for beam time so six months was lost in the middle of a tight race okay where I managed to finish just about dead even but if Paul Sigler had not intervened I'm not sure I would have got the beam time uh, you know in a timely manner and the, here's this really sad tragedy that four year, five days after he intervened on my behalf, he died of a heart attack. So if I would waited for, you know, a week, I have no idea what might have happened, okay? I may not even be standing here before you uh, giving this lecture, okay? So it's just one of those weird, uh, you know, happenstances in science, you know, and how, you know, uh, how much depends on accidents and luck. And this is the uh, capability, this is the beam uh, line at, at in Chicago that we ended up using. Now, when your experiment works, what you get is a three-dimensional image of the object. It doesn't tell you what the structure is. You have to build it in. And it's a little bit like solving a jigsaw puzzle. And what you do is you poke around, and as with a jigsaw puzzle where you're trying to look for patterns, you look for things you can recognize and what you see is that there are two strands here and you can see that there are regular bumps on each strand and if you know what you're doing you recognize it as a double helical section of RNA and uh, and so all of a sudden you've taken a piece of the image and you've built it in chemical terms Okay, you've interpreted it in chemical terms, so you've built a piece of the structure and what you end up doing is you uh, then uh, start building the rest of the image until there's no more of the image left uh, to interpret. And when you do that, you have an atomic structure of your object. And doing exactly this, the, uh, both the large subunit and the small subunit were solved at almost, uh, they were published within a month of each other uh, in 2000. And these structures shed a, uh, give very strong support for the idea that ribosomes came up from a primordial world where there was no DNA and there were no proteins. There was only RNA and maybe short peptides. Because ribosomes are made of proteins and RNA, but if ribosomes themselves are used to make proteins, how could the ribosome even have got started? And why would you even need a code uh, if if there were no proteins uh, to begin with? So people feel that the ribosome is an object that came from an early world where uh, there was just RNA and maybe some small peptides. And from that world, the ribosome evolved. And initially, it may have made random peptides. And then somehow that got, you know, the idea of a code evolved. And then eventually DNA was used to store the code. And that people still don't really understand how uh, all of this began. And then a few years later, we... Saw the structure of the entire ribosome which has about half a million atoms. And then we were able to use these structures to see antibiotics bound to the ribosome and we could see where many antibiotics were bound uh, to the uh, different parts of the ribosome and people uh, including Stites and uh, Ada Yonath did that to the large subunit as well. well. Some of my book has to do with the human side of science and one is that, you know, scientists are neither Sparks, uh, nor are we saints. And we're motivated by curiosity, by ambition, by egos, insecurity, anxiety, rivalry and competition, and self-interest. We'll collaborate or compete depending on what we feel is best. But but we're also altruistic. Humans are also helpful and altruistic. So many people helped me with advice. Uh, They provided, they actually made... Uh, compounds that were not uh, commercially available and provided them, they gave me technical help and often with no expectation of anything, no co authorship, nothing. they just sent it to me by post and just to advance the cause of science so So you see the entire spectrum of humanity in the in the enterprise of science, and then there 's the politics of recognition you know i the thing about prizes is that they convert science into a sporting competition. The problem in, in sports, if you have a 100-meter race, you have a very precise measurement of who comes first, second and third. The rules are well defined and the outcome is, is properly measured. But science is a multidimensional enterprise. You don't know in a field who contributes the most important thing uh, and often many people contribute co- complementary things, and trying to judge you know a first, second, and a third uh, in science is often very, very subjective and it 's very corrupting you know you, you start giving these prizes even in primary school now, uh, and then secondary school and all through university you get early career awards and the whole thing is a corrupting influence and you get elected to your academies and then you get and the Nobel has this limit of three people. And maybe that was okay in 1901 when people didn't talk to each other very much and it was clear who did, who had done it. Uh, but now you have a seed of an idea and you discuss it at a meeting. People then immediately develop it and it's not clear whether the original seed or some subsequent thing was the really important step. And the other thing that... And also people hanker after the Nobel but because of its cachet. But the Nobel is not given for being a great scientist, you know. It's it's for making important discovery or advance. And I talk in the book about, you know, just as Shakespeare said, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And you could say the same thing about Nobel. So they they have the whole spectrum uh, of people from truly brilliant people. I mean, Einstein was a Nobel laureate, or Richard Feynman, uh, to people who are just pretty good scientists, or maybe not even pretty good, but who happened to be in the right place at the right time or stumbled onto the right discovery. And it also tells you how, the book also tells you how people behave when the stakes are high. And there's a whole chapter called The Ribosome Roadshow. You know, after these discoveries, we were all invited to meetings all over the world. And of course, there's several people who are all sort of either in contention or at least delude themselves that they're in contention. and uh, there are conferences, and and there's all this jockeying for the three chairs when the music stops. And uh, all of a sudden, between 2000 and 2004, I was being invited every year to meetings in Sweden. You know, suddenly the Swedes were interested in ribosomes, and, you know, it's not as... And you you pretty much knew that what they were doing was actually auditioning you. And at the last of the meetings I attended in 2004, I... uh, got into a very bad argument at the the banquet with a a Swedish ribosomologist. He was the only Swedish speaker at this meeting. And uh, it it got to be this vehement argument about one aspect of the ribosome. And a few months later, I found that he had been appointed to the Nobel Committee for Chemistry. And so I decided uh, to decline all further invitations to Sweden because I said, why the hell should I go there and be some sort of supplicant when I know I'm not going to be in the running, and uh, I don't need to eat bad vegetarian food. So, <laughs> so I didn't go there for five years. And so, one October, when I actually got this phone call, I thought it was a prank. I thought that it was much more likely that it was a prank. And I actually asked to speak to this guy. And when he showed up, on the, when he came on the, on, li- on the line, then I really. Sort of with some shock, I, I realized he had put aside his personal grievances and had, you know, he showed he, had, he was a guy with integrity and tried to look at the uh, bigger picture. So uh, you couldn't imagine that a guy like me could uh, would end up in this situation. And and so, here is the king of Sweden, and next to him is Ada Jonat here, and and I'm here, and next to me is the crown princess. Uh, Victoria, and on the other side is, is Tom Stites. So, of course, there were three Science Nobel Prizes, and there was an Economics Prize, and so on. But it's clear that the Swedish press realized that the important thing that year was actually the ribosome. It's the mother of all molecules. It's how, you know, how life really got to be complex. Because they put uh, Tom Stites and me on the front page of the newspapers the next morning. Clearly, the fact that uh, Princess Victoria was sitting between us had absolutely nothing to do uh, (laughs) with their their choice of photograph. So anyway, I finally want to say, you know, the one thing I've learned from my thing is I've had many dead ends. You know, physics was a dead end. Neutron scattering was a dead end. uh, You know, solving pieces of ribosome was a dead end. And each time I tried to somehow give myself a second chance, either by changing fields, or changing jobs, or going to a different institution, or changing techniques, going on sabbatical. And the one thing I have, that I would say, one of my strengths. I'm not. I wouldn't call myself particularly bright, but the one thing is that I'm not afraid to ask for help. And I learned that when I was on sabbatical at the LMB when. Uh, very famous people would ask really trivial questions in seminars. And uh, one thing, another thing I learned at the LMB was to talk to people, this culture of the canteen at the LMB where the people discussed science and talked about their problems. And, of course, you can't talk to people all the time or you'll develop a pack mentality. You've got to have your own ideas and obsess about them and and have that. And as in somebody who went through life pretty much as an outsider, both, uh, sort of ethnically and national nationality wise, I've been an immigrant in two countries, but also in terms of being at sort of peripheral universities, which are not at the center of action, uh, you tend to have what's called an imposter syndrome, and everybody has imposter syndrome, which is they go into a place and they think you know everybody else is really smart and I they're going to find out I'm an actual actually stupid you know and uh, you know the only people who don't have it i think are sociopaths but you know <laughs> but, but 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 the reality is that we all have imposter syndrome but if you're an outsider either geographical or ethnic or gender uh, you know you tend you might tend to have more of an imposter syndrome and the, it's important to realize everybody has it and just sort of get on with life and of course science depends not just on you know your abilities but you know it depends on having enough funding depends on Proper training, which is skill and also persistence or patience and, and, uh, and luck. So uh, I'll stop there except to say that while you've been listening to me, the many thousands of ribosomes in every one of your trillions of cells has been churning out thousands of proteins that reading instructions from your genes. Thank you.